0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Good morning. My name is Webb Yance. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Christ Presbyterian Church. Uh, I also have the privilege this morning of leading us in our reading of the scriptures before David Filson comes and gives us uh, what I heard Nate say was a gonzo sermon uh, or whatever the Australian word that he used. I'm interested to hear how that applies to Dr. Filson's sermon this morning. In the interim, we'll read the passage upon which the sermon is based. It is from Psalm 99, beginning in the first verse. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thank you, Webb. Y'all, it is the word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Let's pray. Father, we come to this your word. Uh, seeking grace, that we would see our King, the Lord Jesus, and that you would give us grace to see that when we fail, uh, he, on our behalf, mightily prevails. Um, Give us grace to come before you with a holy fear and a trust that would set the trajectory of our lives. Get us into your word and get your word into us, for we ask it in the beautiful name of Jesus, the seed who crushed the serpent's head and the alpha and omega. Amen. We all we've been in the book of Psalms uh, for a few weeks now, uh, that collection of ancient songs, the, the hymnal, really, of the Old Testament people of God. Jesus would have grown up as a little boy in the synagogue singing the Psalms, and as we read in Luke 2.52, as he grew in wisdom and stature, there would have been an increasing awareness on the part of Jesus that he was singing the Psalms, and in so doing, he was singing prophetically about himself, because every page either whispers or shouts, the Lord Jesus. Um, the, the, the musical nature of these songs is really a beautiful thing. The, the collection was originally entitled in Hebrew, Telahim. Telahim praise songs. Um, it comes to us as the Psalms because Psalms is the anglicized version of the Greek word psalmois, which was the title of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Psalmois means the same thing as Telahim, songs of Praise or hymns of praise. And their liturgical musical use is really a a delightful thing to see as uh, there are musical instructions throughout the Psalms for the worship team, as it were, in in the synagogue and and, and in the temple. Uh, You you would see things like, quote, for the director of music, some 55 times. Uh, You see, according to the tune. Lilies. You see that in Psalm 45, 60, 69, and, and 80. So apparently lilies is a pretty popular tune among the people of God. Uh, there is the tune in Psalm 22 to the tune doe of the dawn or deer of the morning. In Psalms 57 to 59 and 75 to the tune of do not Destroy and these praise songs go all the way back in time to Moses. In fact, Psalm ninety is from the pen of Moses. David wrote some seventy-three of the Psalms. We see uh, Asaph with twelve. The sons of Korah some ten Psalms. Even Solomon penned a couple of these Psalms. Even the, the Ezraites, who were the post-Babylonian exile leaders of the people of God, penned a couple. Others of them are, are anonymous, but we're looking at a thousand-year span of writing in which we find, as John Calvin said, in the Psalms, the entire anatomy of the whole human soul. Everything that you feel, your hurts, your hopes, your fears, your faith— are there uh, lyrics to the music that we feel in our hearts. There are actually five books to the book of Psalms. We think of the book of Psalms, but it's comprised of five books. And would you believe me if I told you that each of the five books of the Psalms correspond to each of the five books of the Pentateuch? For instance, book one of the Psalms, one through 41, most of them are by David, and it corresponds to Genesis, man as created and sinful and in need of Yahweh are the themes in book one of the Psalms. Book two, 42 to 72, corresponds, as you might guess, to Exodus. Some of them are written by David, one by Solomon, some by the sons of Korah, and the theme of these Psalms is Elohim delivers, Psalm Book three, 73 to 89, uh, corresponds to the book of Leviticus. And and there you have priestly songs to the covenant Lord. And, and those are written primarily by Asaph and some by the Ezraites. And then book four, from which our psalm is taken today, uh, Psalms 90 through 106, many of these are anonymous except 90, which is by Moses, and two, 101 to 103, uh, by David. But this book, the book that we're in today, corresponds to the book of Numbers, and the emphasis is on Yahweh's kingship over all things. And then finally, Psalms 107 to 150, book five, uh, corresponds to Deuteronomy, as you might guess, and the emphasis is on Yahweh's deliverance and doxology. Uh, most of these are anonymous, except 15 of them, which are by David, and Psalm 127 by Solomon. So think of it this way, book one of the Psalms, 1 to 41, Genesis, God made us. Book 2, 42 to 72, Exodus, God goes before us. Book 3, Psalms 73 to 89, Leviticus, God continually surrounds us. Book 4, Psalms 90 to 106, Numbers, God reigns over us as king. Book 5, Psalm 107 to 150, corresponds to Deuteronomy, God rescues us, God delivers us. Each of these sections, each of these books carry with it the call to worship because the Psalter is a clarion call to worship God. And each of these sections, believe it or not, at the end of each of the five books, there is a very distinct word of doxology marking that book off with a doxology. And then a new book begins. And that book ends with a doxology until we get to the grand doxology that is Psalm 150, uh, being the entire psalm of doxology because the entire Psalter is a call to worship. It is a call to approach the hill of our God, Mount Zion, and, and worship him. In fact, if you leave here today and someone says, how was church today? How many people were there? What you need to say to them, it was innumerable. Because when we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 25, you have not come to a city that can be shaken. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of our God, and you are surrounded by innumerable angels in festal garments and the saints who have gone on before you. And so, when somebody says, how many people were at church this morning? You say, listen, when we worship, heaven touches earth, and we are engaged in our saintly singing, with the seraphic singing, and there are more saints and angels surrounding us when we worship than we can even begin to count. Psalms 90 through 99 are what we call enthronement psalms. They focus on the kingship of Yahweh, psalms that extol Yahweh as king. Psalms 96 and 98 look forward to the kingship of Yahweh, and Psalms 99 and 100 tell us what his kingship is like when it comes, and we cannot but And this morning, Psalm 99 gives us three things to sing about. One, the fear of our holy king. Two, the footstool of our holy king. And three, the forgiveness of our holy king. The first three verses there, we read of the fear of our holy king. Yahweh reigns. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. Yahweh is not a tribal king. He is not the property of one as opposed to another tongue or nation or people group. He is the king of of all nations. That's why every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered in Revelation 5, 9, worshiping Yahweh. He is not beholden to any political party. The state is not my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23 verse 1. The Lord reigneth. One of the most joyful utterances which ever leaped from mortal lips as Charles Haddon Spurgeon who lived from 1834 to 92. Let me ask you this, is there anything the world needs to hear more right now than the Lord reigns? Let the earth tremble. Is there anything more that the nations need to hear? Anything more that America needs to hear? Is there anything more that you or I need to hear right now than this? And it is Yahweh who reigns because it is Yahweh who alone is. Theologians use a Latin phrase when they speak of God's existence. And that Latin phrase is this. "a say. A and S-E. Ah, say. It means of himself. You and I are very dependent people. We are dependent for our very existence. God is independent. He depends upon nothing or no one. And when we get into this text, we are confronted with the God who is. And he reveals himself as he wants to be known. But if you're like me, there is that constant temptation. To give God a bit of an image overhaul and recreate Him in, in our own image. How many of you had um, that classic toy, Mr. Potato Head, when you were growing up? You know, Mr. Potato Head fans in here, it's 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 a classic toy. It really is. I mean, you can put. Well, I mean, will you leave the mustache where it is? That mustache is epic, right? We should like start like a Mr. Potato Head mustache growing contest among all the brothers here. Wouldn't wouldn't that be? awesome. Anyway, you can put the ears where the hat's supposed to go. You can put the arm where the other ear is supposed to go. You can put the feet where the eyes are supposed to go. That's the point. You, you can sort of do anything. You can make of Mr. Potato Head what you want. Now, I received a text after the first service that one of our families who couldn't be here this morning was watching the service uh, in the live stream. Uh, David and Mary Elizabeth Ferris, and their little, uh, their little toddler son, Paxton, was listening as the sermon was being preached. And you see what he, what he does here. Uh, he actually gets out his Mr. Potato Head as I'm preaching. And I'm going to tell you, as a preacher, when your congregants want to apply the sermon to their lives that quickly, to take it into themselves and, and live that sermon out, as I was giving this very illustration, I was about right here, as you can see, he gets out his Mr. Potato Head and puts that sermon to work in his own life. But you know, we are, we're like that. We want to take God and sort of remake him in our own image and treat him as though he's sort of a cosmic Mr. Potato Head. You know, another classic toy that we really never outgrow. Can someone tell me where this image was taken? Anyone in here? Look at, look at the next one. Can anybody tell me where this is? McKay's, McKay's. When you walk into McKay's, you see that enormous teenage mutant ninja turtle setting atop a bin of millions of loose Lego pieces. And like those ultimate Lego builders, they come in there and they'll get those 10-gallon bags and stuff them brimming full with just variegated Lego pieces, and they just let their imaginations run wild. That's one of the beautiful things about Legos. You can let your imagination run wild. That's not a beautiful thing about who our God is. The scripture does not come to us and say, let your imagination run wild when you think of who God is, and sort of remake him in your own image. The, the other reason that God is not like Legos is that if you get a box of, of Legos, and you're going to put it together, and you look at the picture on the front of the box, you have that to go by. Uh, women who would put Legos together, girls, they'll, they'll follow the, the instruction manual. Guys, right, we, we don't need no stinking instructions, and so we just go at it, and what we wind up with doesn't look much like the picture on the box. But be that as it may, God is not like a box of Legos. We speak of the aseity of God. He is self-existent. And along with that, he is simple and pure in his being. God is not like a box of Legos or a list of ingredients. He's not a little bit of love and a little bit of grace and a a spoonful of holiness. And you bring all those things together and voila, you have God. Because if that were the case, then God can't be eternal and God can't be independent. That would mean that those things that comprise God had to exist as separate properties before God was. And there had to be some intelligent being capable above God capable of putting those things together to create God. And so we don't want to think of God as someone that we can recreate in our own image or someone who's dependent upon us or anything for his existence. He is his love. He is his grace. He is his holiness. He is all of these things perfectly and fully, unchangeably, sovereignly. And the reason these things matter so much is because God is immutable. He can't change. He can't break his promises to you. He can't break covenant with you. The aseity of God is self-existence. His unchangeableness, his sovereignty are the reasons you can put your head on your pillow tonight and sleep well. But if there's one attribute of God that is the refrain of this song, the dominant chord, it is holy, holy, holy. This psalm defies any simplistic superficial explanation. It is is an intricately woven teaching for the people of God to to sing of God, particularly that the God who is, is the God who reigns, is the God who is holy, holy, holy. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, wait a second, pastor. I thought holy, holy, holy. I thought that bit belonged to Isaiah. And you're right, it, it does. Isaiah 6, 1 to 5. Where Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Smoke filled the room. The doorposts shook. They were seraphim. They had six wings. With two, they flew. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And they cried out one to another, Kodesh, Kodesh, Kodesh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You've heard me explain before that in ancient Hebrew, you couldn't You know, change the color of the font or the size of the font or or any such thing to emphasize something. So you had to you had to appeal to a literary device. You know, we use all kinds of of things uh, to emphasize something we want to say, but but if in Hebrew you really wanted to emphasize something, you, you would you would say it twice. You would repeat holy, holy, to emphasize the holiness of God. It would be like shouting caps in a text. You ever you ever get a text with shouting caps? You know you're in trouble. Usually, like, just this past week, those of you who follow me on Instagram, you, you saw that I rescued a baby squirrel, brought that squirrel home, began to nurse that squirrel, fell in love. It was like, my little precious. I, I love that little baby squirrel. Lydia and Diane were like, okay, what's that thing carrying? What kind of uh, diseases? Keep it away from the dog. Um, but I love that little squirrel. In fact, Lydia— uh, named that squirrel Harlow, because we didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. I thought, I thought Harlow was a little boy. We took uh, her to a wildlife center, and I was educated on the difference between male and female squirrels. Be that as it may, I loved, I loved Harlow, but they had about reached their limits with me bringing creatures home. I think this began uh, about a year ago when I brought that six foot long black rat snake home, and it's just been unreasonable standards from Lydia and Diane ever since about what kind of creatures I can bring home. But uh, we took that Squirrel this week to a wildlife rehab center. Uh, last night I was driving here into the church, and as you pull in here on Chickering, as that little side entrance there, kind of that shoulder of the road, kind of uh, kind of moves off to the side. There was a turtle about a millimeter away from walking right out into traffic on Old Hickory Boulevard. So I quickly uh, stopped my car, pulled into the driveway out here, ran across the middle of the of the church lawn, got that turtle. It was one of the most beautiful ornate box turtles I have ever seen in my life. And so, innocently I snapped a picture and texted it to uh, Lydia and Diane and they got the picture of that turtle and I got no! From Diane. Oh, Lydia, you know, Lydia likes them. No! From Lydia. Just boom. They hadn't even conferred. They were both just no. Shouting caps. Shouting caps. And fear crept into my bones. And so, I released the turtle back here On the back of the property, it was a beautiful, beautiful turtle to say the least. But when you come here to the fear of the Lord, yes, holy, holy, holy belongs to Isaiah 6. But look at your text. Look at the end of verse 3. We tremble before the Lord because verse 3 says, holy is he, Kadesh, who? Psalm 99 verse 5 ends, Kadesh, who? Holy is he. The whole psalm ends Hey, Kadesh Yahweh Elohenu, For the Lord our God is holy. So the seraphic song must become the saints' song on earth. That's why we sing songs like holy, holy, holy. We are singing that our God is holy. He is set apart, as Cornelius Van Til from Westminster, lived from 1895 to 1987, said, that we are not God. God is God. And he spoke of the creator creature distinction. God is set apart. He is the perfection of moral purity in and of himself where there is no standard of goodness or righteousness or purity above him to which he must attain. He is the very essence of purity. The holiness of God is like a summative attribute of God that expresses, if I can say it this way, the very godness of God. But the fear of the Lord is what we so desperately need. We need a fresh encounter with the holiness and the fear of God So that with Isaiah in 6, 1 to 5, we could say, Woe is me, I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, from among a people of unclean lips, and my poor eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Or with Habakkuk in Habakkuk 3, 16, when he heard the voice of Yahweh, he said, My heart began to pound, my lips began to tremble, rottenness crept into my bones, and my legs gave way. Or Job, who encountered the holiness of God in 42, 6, says, I despise myself, and I cover and repent myself with dust and ashes or Peter in Luke chapter 5 verse 8 had been fishing all night could catch nothing and Jesus has cast your net over there and they bring in a haul of fish that they could barely bring into the boat and Peter realized he was in the presence of holiness and he came and he fell face down before Jesus and said depart from me Lord I am a sinful man the presence of holiness brings about a recognition that we must tremble before God that he is God and we are not Jonathan Edwards, who lived from 1703 to 58, wove the holiness of God, or the beauty of God's holiness, as he liked to call it, into his entire apologetic program of preaching in his transatlantic context when enlightenment deism was being imported across the Atlantic into America, into the early universities of of the fledgling uh, nation with its focus on deism, which would say that God must submit himself to the autonomous reasoning of natural man. Edwards was ravished. He was enamored by the beauty of God's holiness. He spoke of God's holiness as the cream of all the believers' pleasures. Who thinks, who speaks of God that way? The cream of all our pleasures is the holiness of God. And once we get a glimpse of that holiness, that glimpse grows us, transfixed on God's holiness, transforms the very side of his holiness, sanctifies us. Edwards says, holiness is a most beautiful and lovely thing. We drink in strange notions of holiness from our childhood as if it were a melancholy, morose, sour, and unpleasant thing. But there is nothing in it but what is sweet and ravishingly lovely. It is the highest beauty and amiableness, vastly above all other beauties. Holiness of God is more beautiful than anything. And in fact, Edward says that when we look upon the holiness of God, it begins to transform us and mold us and remake us. And when God's holiness begins to sanctify us and make us more like Christ, Edward says, angels look at us and smile. Angels, he says, hover over us and they delight over us as we begin to reflect the very holiness of God. Yahweh, we read, is holy. And he sits enthroned, verse 1, above the cherubim. Let the earth quake. We dare not imagine the cherubim as these rosy-cheeked, plump-bottomed, little curly-headed cherubs that make an appearance on Valentine's Day cards. If there is ever a creature in the Bible that strikes fear of God into the people of God, it is the cherubim stationed at the entrance to the garden temple east of Eden. Genesis 3, 24, they are, as Alec Motier said, the guardians of God's holiness. These cherubim tell me, David, God is holy, 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 and left to yourself. You are lost, you are sinful, and you are full of yourself. You look at, Ezekiel chapter 1, he encountered the cherubim. Do yourself a favor this Lord's Day. Read Ezekiel chapter 1. I think the book of Ezekiel may be the most difficult book of the whole Bible to interpret. But you look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and he sees these cherubim and they were spinning like wheels. They had eyes going on all around, wings with which they would fly. They would make these incredible noises as they flew that sound like the rushing of mighty waters. And when they would come into the presence of God himself, they would let their wings down. And Ezekiel says over there. The heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, Heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance and upward from what had the appearance of his waist i saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist i saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain so was the appearance of the brightness all around such was the appearance of the light of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Lord, we have the right and the rejoicing and the responsibility to declare the fear of the Lord that all will tremble. For when we sing our hymns, Colossians 3.16, we teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are teaching each other, but when we sing, make no mistake about it, we are declaring war. Let the earth tremble. Let the gates of hell tremble. We sing to declare war on the world, the flesh, and the devil. We sing to declare war on our sin and our servile fears and our doubts. We are so like Doubting Thomas, right, who struggled to believe you realize what happened on the first Lord's Day, the very first Lord's Day in all of history. The momentous event that occurred on the first Lord's Day was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you know what happened on the second Lord's Day? On the second Lord's Day, the Lord appeared to Thomas, and he said to Thomas, doubt no more. I am your God. The footstool of our holy king, we see it in 99 verses 4 through five. This psalm really is medicine for my deepest ill, my problem, my hang-up with authority. That's really the history of history, is our problem with authority. History is replete. The atheistic French Revolution of the 1790s was in so many ways prophesied by a French atheist, proto-communist, Jean Meslier. He lived from 1664 to 1729. He was a French atheist priest and at the end of his life, he left his parishioners, uh, basically his memoirs, entitled "La uh, Testament. Uh, he declared Jesus as, quote, on un a madman, on fanatique, a fanatic. He spoke of a man that he knew who wished, and I quote, that all the great men in the world and all the nobility could be hanged and strangled by the guts of the priests. And that came to pass more or less as the professed overthrow of all authority in the French Revolution led to sheer authoritarianism as all atheistic systems must do. Or we could think of Alexander Solzhenitsyn lived from 1918 to 2008 in his Templeton Prize speech for progress in religion at London Guildhall, May 10th, 1983, where he tried to account for the fact that as of the Russian Revolution, some 60 million people were murdered. What accounts for this? And he says over and again, he repeats this phrase, the older people tell me it's because man forgot God. We think of Popular neo atheist Christopher Hitchens, who was a brilliant man, quite cheeky, very entertaining, um, astute. Sadly, passed away December fifteenth, two thousand and eleven. Before he ever put his pen to paper for his beloved Marxism, he was preceded by American atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare. You perhaps remember her. You remember the story of her son William writing in his biography. When he was a little boy, he had gone home and told his mom that he had participated in Bible readings and prayers at school, and she slapped him in the face, and she said, you stupid fool. Says this to her little son. You stupid fool. The only way true freedom can be achieved is through the new socialist man. We have to achieve an entire race that lives for the state. She was committed to the death of God. Or consider Margaret Sanger, committed to the deaths of millions of infants, co-founder of American Civil Liberties Union and Planned Parenthood. She also published a newspaper entitled Woman Rebel, the motto of which was no gods and no masters. Now that we have sung of our king's holiness, we look at his sovereign might by which he loves justice and equity that's what the text says he loves justice and equity and we hear so much talk of justice and equity these days, but oh that we would see the difference between what passes for social justice according to culture and biblical justice for society, for apart from the latter, I have no transcendent standard of right and wrong by which to even begin a conversation about justice. When the church enters the conversation about justice and equity, and she must, she must begin by asking the question, by what standard? Is it the law of perfect liberty, as James calls it in James 2, 8 to 13, or is is it the Darwinian law of the jungle to which we must yield? It's the road to Calvary. The road to Calvary and the cross of Christ that we need not. Dear Langemarsch, Dirk de Institutione of Rudi Duschke 1967, communist activist who spoke of the long march of communism through the institutions, which can only lead to anarchy or authoritarianism, not atonement, no gospel. See Yahweh establishes justice and righteousness, according to our text, in Jacob. In Jacob, he establishes justice and righteousness by means of the greater Jacob, Jesus Christ, who by his life and death satisfied the justice of law with regard to my sin and yours. We see in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. The Greek word is Helosterion. It means a satisfactory payment for sin, a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement. Are you beginning to see where the text is taking us here? Are you beginning to see angels ascending? And descending upon the Son of Man As Jesus said He was the true ladder to heaven The true and greater Jacob of John Chapter 1 verses 50 to 51 But our problem with authority Vastly predates any of the examples we've considered it Vastly predates You and me it goes back to the garden Where our first parents had nothing to do With the law of God And instead opted for the law of perfect bondage The law of sin and self And they found themselves on the east side of the cherubim, God's footstool of authority. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, verse 1. They are his footstool, verse 5. You remember that word that we just mentioned, propitiation, Romans 3, 25. It appears four times in the New Testament, Romans 3, 25, 1 John 2, uh, verse 2. And First John 4 verse 10, but it also appears, that word in the Greek, kilosterion, payment for sin, propitiation, it also appears in the book of Hebrews. I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews and look at chapter 9 verse 5. This is an amazing thing. We see in Hebrews 9 the decor for the temple. We see there in the most holy place the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant, the law. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the what? The mercy seat. The mercy seat. Would you believe me if I told you that in the Greek the word mercy seat is the word Helosterion? Propitiation. The one time propitiation is translated as mercy seat. In fact, David in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 2, explicitly refers to the Ark of the Covenant as God's footstool. What are we we getting at here? Well, Moses and Aaron were priests. Samuel was a prophet and they called upon the Lord. They worshiped him. They prayed. How? They were sinners because the true and greater prophet, priest, and king would shed his blood for them. Just as we see in Return of the King in the legend of Gondor, which said the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so you shall know the rightful king when he comes. Only Aragon could save those and heal those wounded by the enemy. So Jesus is the only one who could bring healing to you and me. You see, the cherubim, the cherubim is the place of authority, but also the place of atonement. And we see the forgiveness of our king. I love the way Alec Moutier says it. Listen carefully. The feet of the enthroned God rested on the mercy seat. The transcendently holy God touched earth at the place where the atoning blood was sprinkled, Leviticus 6.15. And the mercy seat was over the tablets of the law whose breach constituted our sin, Exodus 40, verse 20. And when we come to the end of John's gospel, we see our king having been crucified now risen, death defeated, death trembles before him. That's why we read in Hebrews 2 that Jesus came for two reasons. To destroy him who holds the power of death and deliver all of us. Who because of our fear of death were held in lifelong bondage. And when Mary Magdalene comes and enters into the tomb, this, this one who was the first evangelist of the resurrection, it's an amazing thing that it was a woman Nobody took a woman's word seriously in that day and age, and yet for the Gospels, it was a woman, and a woman who who had had a reputation, might I add, who was the first evangelist. The New Testament's no spin document, y'all. Mary Magdalene saw the two angels when she entered the empty tomb. In John chapter 20, verse 12, and she saw the slab where Jesus' body had lain, that sacrifice of atonement having lain on that slab. And she looks at one end of that slab, and there is an angel. And she looks at the head of that slab, and there is an angel. Because the blood had stained the mercy seat. The king now reigning over death. The angels attending the mercy seat, now covered in precious, precious blood. Yahweh's footstool is the Ark of the Covenant, and he has the authority due to the blood of Jesus poured out thereupon to say to doubters like Thomas and doubters like You and I sometimes are not only doubt no more, but as it were, come and take the bread and the cup. And when you come and you take the bread and the cup, as it were, you are putting your hand into my side. You are touching my wounded hands. You're learning to sing with Charles Wesley. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. And we come and we see our risen king and we feast with him at this table and we say, we sing with Thomas, I will doubt no more, my Lord and my God. And so beloved, it's time for us to come and put our hands to the the bread and, and to the cup and to feel our king's sufferings and to tremble and to trust and to let our... Holy King, be the trajectory of our lives every week, and to say, My God and my Lord, reign over me as I come to a feast that is fit for a king, for a sinner like me. I want to ask all of our table hosts and servers, our worship team, to come as we prepare our hearts to come here and to feel our Savior's sufferings and to feel our need of our King. And as we stretch our hands forward to take the bread and the cup to realize that the hands of our King are indeed healing hands, and that's, that's how He is known. If you're here and you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, and uh, you know your need of, of the King, you know your need of, of the King's wounds for you, by His wounds we are healed, Isaiah 52, 13 to fifty three twelve tells us then this table is for you. If you've been baptized into Christ in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and you are in fellowship with a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, this table is yours because Christ is yours and you are Christ's. If you're here this morning, maybe you would say, I'm not sure what I think about Christianity. I'm still trying to figure some of the things out about the Bible and who Jesus claims to be. Uh, I'm curious, but I'm not there. This is a really great place to be curious about Christianity. We... We'd love to be on that journey with you. If that is you, and you say, I don't know that I would call myself a believer in Christ, this table is a profession of, of belief in Christ. And so rather than taking the bread and the cup, take the opportunity maybe to look at the prayers in the Bibles in front of you, or take the opportunity to talk with someone around you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I promise you this, the people around you would love nothing more than to hear your story, tell you their story, and tell you the old, old story of Jesus. Or maybe you want to come and just watch what Christians do around the table as we take hold of the bread and the cup. I'm going to uh, enter into here a little bit of liturgy. These, These are words that really matter, and I want you to listen carefully to what we're going to say. Then I'm going to pray, and then we are going to confess together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the apostle Paul says, our Lord took bread. He blessed it and broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul continues that in like manner after supper. Our Lord took the cup. He blessed it and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the remission of sins. Drink it, all of you. Paul goes on to say that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of our Lord until he comes. It's not just participation in the Lord's Supper. It's preaching. It's proclamation of the gospel to your hearts and the hearts of all those at table with you. Gracious Father, we come now and ask that you would by your Holy Spirit And in the name of Jesus, take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and do something extraordinary in us. Um, Teach us to tremble. Teach us to freshly have a sense of you and to know the hands of our King, our healing hands, for we ask it in his precious name. Amen.